Dr. Boyer, welcome to the Raising Kellen podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time from your schedule to talk to us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Dr. Karen Boyer holds many honors, and amongst which uh, include 50 years of devoted service to higher education, being the first female and third president of Dyersburg State Community College and serving a 37-year tenure. We will start off today's conversation by asking Dr. Boyer, what were the early years like growing up in Quincy, Illinois? Well, I grew up on a farm actually near Quincy, Illinois with two brothers, uh, an older brother, younger brother, my father and mother. So um, we had a lot of opportunities back then. This was in the 40s and 50s. So I, uh, we had a small farm, so we had animals and grain, and we all had our assigned duties. We knew we were milking cows or helping my father in the field or helping with the garden or helping my mother in the home. So it was, it was a very busy time. We were, we were very active, but I think the uh, opportunity to grow up with two, two guys, my two brothers, made me realize, you know, I could take care of just about anything they could take care of, you know, and so I guess it gave me a lot of confidence. But I, I also had a strong mother who was really, keen on uh, all of us getting an education and you know my father was supportive but she was kind of the, the leader of the two in terms of education and we were encouraged of course to do our homework and and do well in school and she was part of the parent teacher association you know the PTA so she was involved and kind of kept a pretty close eye on us I think to be sure we were doing what we're supposed to do and we were in a small rural high school, so we got to do everything. You know, we played in the band, we were in the plays, uh, you know, uh, just and participated in, in sports. We At that time, women were not on uh, inner, you know, uh, inner high school type athletic. We couldn't compete against other high schools. We had intramurals within the high school, but women were not competing back then like they are now, you know, like we've just seen uh, right. with the Olympics and all that, and of course in our college and in high schools now. So, um, it what was just, What was your uh, sport of choice? <laughs> well, let's see, I love basketball, I think it was, uh, so we played a lot of basketball, and later when I went to college we played uh, Badminton. I loved to swim too. I mean, I wasn't an expert swimmer, but uh, and we played softball and baseball. So I really enjoyed all of it. I think a lot of it was just the chance to get around people. Uh, we'd have to go to our little town and and get together with our team, or else we were in high school, you know, with a team. So all of that was great fun and participated in as much of it as I could. Do you think the sportsmanship were some of the experiences that helped shape you as a leader, Dr. Boyer? I think some of it. I had um, some of my really exemplary teachers. It was a, a Mr. Taylor, who was a man that, who taught uh, seventh and eighth graders, and he was just so um, reassuring and encouraging and saying, "Oh, you're a you know great player." and and in high school, the same thing. I mean, we we uh, 
were always, I was always encouraged, and I think other people were too, but uh, we had some excellent teachers, even though it was a small school. Maybe we didn't have um, all the advanced subjects that we needed, like maybe calculus, but we did have the sciences. We had chemistry and physics and biology and, and really good uh, English teachers, and you know, and we had a uh, we had Spanish as a foreign language. So, wow. you know, uh, when I went to college, I realized that some high school students had many more advanced courses right. opportunities than I did. But I was able to catch up and and compete with them too. So <laughs> anyway. Um, Dr. Boyer, what fueled your passion for mathematics? Because that was your, your undergrad, your Bachelor of Arts uh, was in mathematics. And I mean, I just thought that was fascinating. You know, I, I loved uh, math. I, uh, I grew up, uh, well, we were sort of coming along when Sputnik happened in 1957. And of course, that was toward the end, I guess, of my high school. but. Um, and, I'd, and I had good mathematics teachers. I had uh, probably, I, I went to a small country one-room schoolhouse at first, and that was the first three grades. But after that, the teachers, and that teachers, those teachers were fine too, but we just had a lot of good people in mathematics, which was wow. great. So, uh, and particularly that man, Mr. Taylor, he was really keen on mathematics. And, and again, very encouraging and just saying, oh, you're, you know, such a good student and on and on. So it's nice to be <laughs> you know, encouraged like that. And, um, and, but when Sputnik happened, you know, it was kind of a, a wave across this country. We need to compete with the Russians, Russians. and we need to know more math and science. So um, when I went to Knox College for my undergraduate work, I thought about physics and math. But later, I really enjoyed math and, again, had good professors there, and, and I got into German. So, you know, mathematics is a language just like German is a language. You have to learn all the symbols and how you translate from a sentence into or a situation into a mathematical formula. So I, I uh, just... Uh, was successful with that and enjoyed it. You know, now that I look back, I enjoyed things like uh, political science too and international studies. And um, I hadn't had much work in the humanities when I went to high school, right. but we, we got into, uh, you know, Greek um, literature and all the, uh, you know, all the art courses and things that I'd never had a chance. So I enjoyed those. And, you know, to this day, I. One of the first things I visit in a city is probably an art museum, if I can, you know, to see the, all the art. So I enjoy that. And I'm not much of an artist myself, but um, <clears throat> I enjoy what other you people You appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. So. so you've just been a lifelong learner, Dr. Boyer, haven't <laughs> well, you? I mean, Well, yeah. that's true. We all, <laughs> we all learn for, forever, like... I have recently bought a ukulele, so I'm going to try to, I play the guitar a little bit. I played the clarinet when I was in the high school band, and in the college band I played the clarinet, but haven't played that for a while, so, you know, I'm looking forward to maybe, and I'd love to learn to play the piano. I've never learned to, to do that, so I'd like to, uh, when I might have a little more time after, <laughs> after December 31, uh, maybe uh, take all of that up. So, it sounds like Mr. Taylor may have contributed to putting you on that trajectory of teaching and learning. 
Would you say you always imagined yourself as a teacher or a professor or in the education field? Or is that something that kind of just happened? Or was teaching something you very much gravitated towards? Yeah, I really gravitated toward teaching. I enjoyed, um, you know, I mean, we, as a good student, you often are teaching other students or trying to help them understand things. So I was, I enjoyed doing that with my classmates. And uh, um, I think it was, it's always, and I had uh, my uncle and my aunt uh, were uh, both teachers. And a lot of people, you know, back in the, I guess, 40s, 50s, they didn't have to spend a lot of time in college to become a, maybe an elementary school teacher. And I know my aunt did that for a short amount of time. So I think maybe I had a few role models in the family. Most of the family, though, were farmers, or later they, one or two became engineers, you know, civil engineers, that kind of thing. But um, mainly I was around uh, people who were farming and, you know, raising grain and animals and kind of a <laughs> almost, uh, you know, uh, self-sufficient farms where yes. you grew all your own food and you, you know, took care of all of that, did all the work. Dr. Boyer, after you obtained your Bachelor of Arts in Mathematics uh, in Knox College in 1963, you went on to Rutgers. Mm -hmm. and, uh, what was that change like from Knox College to New Jersey? Yeah, I was, you know, Knox is in the middle of Illinois, the middle of the Midwest, and from Knox I went to the Chicago area to teach. I taught for three years north of Chicago in uh, Libertyville, Illinois. And at that time, there were um, uh, National Science Foundation fellowships or scholarships for teachers to become better math teachers or better science teachers. Again, we were trying to outdo the Russians, you know. So in 1966, I was awarded a, a scholarship to Rutgers to, to complete a master's program. So the students in my class were teachers from all over, mainly, um, I would say mainly from Illinois East, you know, it was that half of, about half of the country. But that was fascinating to be uh, in New Jersey and near, we were about 50 minutes from New York City, so we spent a lot of time in New York City uh, on weekends. But, you know, we all worked hard and, and we all earned our master's degrees. And, uh, but uh, along the way, we saw a lot of Broadway shows. We stood up during, you know, all the uh, old classics back in the 60s, which were really wonderful to see. So, what was your favorite? What was, well, what's your favorite Broadway show? <laughs> I don't know. You know, there was Man from La Mancha. There was um, West Side Story. Probably oh. that's one of the... And we saw them with sometimes the original cast, like Carol Channing was in Hello, Dolly. And... Zero Mostel was in uh, Fiddler wow. on the Roof, and so we saw <clears throat> a lot of top entertainers, and uh, 
and of course we would stand through these productions because we had no money and I can't remember <laughs> standing. It was, I think we were able to do that for maybe, I don't know if it was $5 or $1 or what, but it wasn't much. <laughs> you went from Rockers onto the University of Alabama and, and that's a big change as well in terms of just culture and please correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a doctor of philosophy in mathematic education that you obtained from the right. university. Of Alabama. That's correct. Yeah. Wow. I, I went from Rutgers. I spent, again, I spent three years in Cali, Colombia, in South America. So I went from the East Coast to South America and then I came back to Alabama. So, uh, and it was, um, I was teaching in an international but an American school mainly. And we had, Maybe 40% of our, of our students were um, American citizens from North America. So the idea was that the schools would be accredited by our associations in North America and the United States. So a student who might be there with their parents from, say, Quaker Oats or Uniroyal or some U.S. company, they might be assigned there for a couple of years. But when they went home, they wanted to be sure that their student was kind of in an American curriculum that could kind of fit back in at home wherever they went. And those schools, there was, I think when I was there, there were like 190 of them around the world. But So I taught high school mainly, but uh, did a lot of sort of guest working, and I think I coached tennis at the time that I was down there too. Wow. But, um, the University of Alabama had a contract with the U.S. State Department and all of our teachers, all of us, had to stay up to date and take so many graduate hours every year or so in order to stay uh, certified and for the school to be accredited. So the University of Alabama sent faculty to, uh, to Cali to teach us and so <clears throat> they would come in and give us, you know, we'd have lectures for maybe a week and then assignments, and then they would come back and maybe a month and see how or else we would submit papers. And so it was a very interesting thing. So over the three years, I think I earned, I don't know, maybe 12 credit hour, 12 graduate hours. So I was kind of on my way to getting a, another degree. And um, I had my roommate had an offer to go to Alabama to be a graduate assistant. Well, she didn't want to go. She was going to marry a Colombian and stay in Colombia for a while. So I got the assistantship. So wow. I went to Tuscaloosa and spent, uh, you know, a year. And of course, my graduate work counted that I did in Colombia and finished it up. So that was. Uh, you're right. It was a very, I think I understood sometimes the Colombians better than I understood the people from Alabama. You know, there are a lot of different accents. And uh, wow. I mean, we have them all over the South, but it was, uh, it was interesting. What is your favorite Colombian adventure? Uh, wow, well, we, um, probably on the Amazon River, uh, probably about, I guess there were four or five of us teachers over a spring break, just rented a boat and a guide, and we went upriver and lived with, uh, you know, the people Most along the, the people. way. So we'd string up hammocks in their homes, and, you know, the homes were very primitive, really. So it was just fascinating to see the some of the animals, see the how those people lived, and so we... Um, we had quite a time. It was—it's amazing. Uh, we could—we lived to tell about it. But we, you know, we, 
were swimming in the Amazon, and you know, wow. they assured us the piranha wouldn't uh, catch us if we were not <laughs> bleeding or whatever. So, so that was a pretty big adventure. But I was able to travel to every country in Latin America, and we did a lot of bus travel. You know, just on the the regular, uh, we called them kind of almost like, uh, you know, it was just the regular buses that all the ordinary people who had usually not much money. I mean, the bus rides were maybe a quarter. And, and sometimes um, I think you you would have to understand what bus travel is like in a third world country because it is not air conditioned or luxurious. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're right up against the next person on on yeah. metal on uh, on almost a metal bench with little to no padding. <laughs> right. Sometimes they would pull the seat out away from the window, so the person by the window was kind of sitting in a a frame almost and. Uh, and sometimes your your seatmate would be carrying an animal. It, usually, it was a chicken, you know. That, uh, and so that was always interesting to watch. So, so it was that we uh, we had lots of adventures, and we were there just as the Peace Corps was coming into Colombia. And you know, Peace Corps really started about sixty two, sixty three in this country, and and young people like my age spread all over the world to work for a couple years. And, this is something I, I, I used to get asked a lot in the past, but I, I would like to ask you this question. Did you ever feel unsafe as a female traveling by yourself in a, in a, uh, in a foreign country or internationally? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we never did, and I probably never traveled by myself. I mean, I was usually with uh, a friend and... One of my uh, friends that I taught with, uh, Johnny Ruth Aldridge, was probably about six feet tall, maybe <laughs> taller. And of course, the Colombians back then were, you know, they were very short, so she was uh, intimidating for sure. <laughs> and, uh, so we never, uh, but you know, I never really did. Uh, I think with one of the Indian tribes who that we were with in, along the Amazon. Um, they were pretty primitive, so we weren't sure exactly how they would behave, but you know, we were in and out and no problems with them. So Wow. Yeah. What amazing adventures. It just and um, Doctor Boyer, I will let you take take the, the reins and, and tell us what happens next yeah. from from Alabama? Yeah, from Alabama, I actually got married, uh, and uh, I married a professor in Alabama who actually I had met in Columbia, but um, he was one of the ones that came down to teach. So I ended up marrying my professor. It was after I got all my grades. There was no <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no uh, change there, but. Uh, so we moved to Memphis, Tennessee. He had a job, and I didn't have a job. And, you know, I'd worked in Illinois, and I'd worked in Columbia. So it was kind of different to go and, you know, like, um, see if, what I could do. And uh, we had, because we'd worked with the schools, the Memphis City schools were tied into one of these uh, uh, schools in, actually in Guatemala, but they were very tuned in to international education okay. back then. So this is 1972, a long time ago. Um, so I ended up with um, a full-time one-semester appointment at the University of Memphis, or back then it was Memphis State University, and I taught mathematics for a semester. Somebody had resigned at the last minute, and they just hired a temp made a temporary appointment. So during that semester, I taught at um, 
Memphis State, the community college opened in Memphis, so I applied and I started teaching mathematics as an adjunct faculty member in January of 73, and it was a brand new community college, so, you know, again, uh, I'd encourage people, I think I volunteered for everything. I mean, we're a small core of us and we got a chance to, you know, write the curriculum and develop courses and, uh, you know, just really explore things and it was exciting. And the same thing happened to me at Ruck, from Rutgers to go to South America. There was a lot of freedom to choose how you taught and what you used for teaching and, you know, things were not so prescribed. So it was. Uh, you know, it was a chance to develop some, uh, I guess, leadership skills and, and also to experiment and see what worked and, and to realize that, you know, sometimes you're not always right, but at least you keep tr trying to do better, you know, each, each time. So um, after that spring of an adjunct teaching, I started as a full-time teacher in uh, the fall, and then I became the department head, and then I... Uh, and this is all in mathematics That's now, right? In mathematics. mathematics. Yeah. Okay. And then um, I taught from '74, and I, I had a chance for another National Science Foundation uh, small summer grant at Indiana University, and so I got engaged in that too. And you know, again, I, I think a lot of times it's being open to trying things, and if you get an opportunity, take it if it seems like it's going to. <laughs> help you and your students or your college, whatever it is, wherever you're working. So uh, I did that for at least a month or more, and um, so that was that was terrific. And then uh, came back and, and uh, taught for about three, four years, and then the uh, academic officer's job opened up. Okay. And there were a lot of us that are about the same age that were uh, all heads of departments, like one of my friends was head of sciences, another head of, uh, you know, of history and, and uh, humanities. And these were all guys, and I was the only woman that was the head of a department. Um, so uh, when it came time, uh, people said, well, you need to apply for this job. I mean, I never thought I was ready to be an academic officer for a community college, you know. And so with a lot of urging, I did apply, and I ended up getting the job. So again, I guess the lesson is, uh, you know, even though you may not feel like you're not ready for the next step, um, you know, I mean, you, you can talk to people and see if they think maybe you're ready. I mean, I wasn't asking anybody. They were coming to me and saying, right. you, you need to do this. And, and it was kind of shocking that they thought that to me, <laughs> and then the fact that I got the job. So I served in that job from 1978, and the founding president who appointed me was really kind of a mentor, and the academic officer who had been there was another guy, that, two men that were really helpful, and you know, that I guess were impressed with what we were trying to do in at least my department, and, and working in the college. I mean, I was working on college-wide committees, too, that were trying to start an institution yes. and, you know, get it going. So just a lot of opportunities to participate in things, and I know not everybody can walk into a new place where there's a lot of freedom to try things and, and to make a kind of your own imprint on how things develop, you know, because it's not developed yet, you know. Dr. Boyer, you moved to Dyersburg, and 
How did that happen? How did you move to Diasburg to serve uh, here as president? Yeah, the um, uh, job in, Dar in Memphis, um, when the founding president retired, again, people asked me, well, I guess the chancellor had asked me, um, let's see, how did this work? I was, um, this was in 1981, yeah. So 1981, um, um, I was, the chancellor asked me, um, or I mean, I was appointed as the interim president of the college in, in Memphis. And it was, we, when we opened, um, we were, um, you know, community, it was a brand new thing in, in Memphis, never had been a community college there before. So because of open admissions, and, and I think we had several locations pretty early on, we had a lot of African-American students, a lot of black students uh, participated. Right. And, and plus, uh, when we opened in 72, you know, people were coming home from Vietnam or somewhere. So we had a lot of veterans too. Right. So anyway, it was becoming about 60 to 70% African-American. So right. the, the board uh, had never hired an African-American leader either in the community college. So, the, the criteria to be uh, the president, the real job, supposedly, uh, was at least five years of experience at the, at the uh, you know, kind of vice president level. Yes. Well, I'd been the academic officer, vice president for academic affairs since 78, so I'd only been in the job three years, so I didn't have the five years. So I ended up not applying for that job. And then, so that was 1982. So I stayed at the institution until 84, and um, one of the presidencies opened in Columbia, Tennessee. And again, it was the founding president retiring. There was an academic officer there that had been there for the whole time of the institution. But I applied and interviewed, but they ended up hiring him, and I didn't get the job. It was June of 80, 84. Again, I had an opportunity. Um, uh, I guess while I was at Shelby State, I applied to go to Harvard for their Institute on Educational Management while I was accepted to that. So I spent July of 84 there. I came home, we started the school year, and then this presidency opened here in Dyersburg. So the chancellor called me and I think he, you know, I really, things went really well while I was interim at, in Memphis. So I think he felt like, you know, maybe give me a chance, I don't know. So he said, how would you like to be interim at Dyersburg State? Of course, I had been interim in Memphis at Shelby State back then. So I said, sure, you know, I'd certainly think about it. And uh, my husband and I, uh, you know, I was coming from, uh, you know, South America. I actually, I worked in Mexico City, too, for a year. So coming from this 20 million people in Mexico City to maybe a million, 600,000 in Memphis. And then, you know, we came up to Dyersburg with 16,000 people, I think. And we thought you know, this is really going to be different. <laughs> and, uh, but I had grown up on a farm in rural western Illinois. This is rural western right. West Tennessee. So it was, there was a lot of, you know, feeling at home, Similar really, cheese. with this. So everything worked out well, and, and they did a national search here, and I ended up with the position a year or so later. I mean, full-time, but uh, it really started in November of 84. So fairly soon it will be... 37 years, and um, and then I, you know, I started teaching in 1963. So I guess I've been working in education for 58 years. You know, it's either teaching at 
in high school or a graduate assistantship or teaching in Latin America where I was, um, you know, it was mainly high school teaching and then coming up here and starting uh, and really in 1972 starting, started to teach at the collegiate level. So it's kind of a real roundabout, but it, you know, all those experiences in, in, in uh, South America, I think, again, like you were saying, cultures, you know, coming to Alabama from Rutgers, but coming out of, um, out of South, out of Colombia, and really by, after four years, I was three years in Colombia, a year in Mexico City, I was really bilingual in Spanish, and so it was, you know, just learning another language, really understanding the culture much better than even a tourist that understands uh, Spanish. I lived with a Colombian family for about a year, uh, which also gave me a great insight into the the country and the culture. So all those things, uh, uh, I would recommend. You know, people get the opportunity to first of all. Um, you know, understand your own country and yes. your own people as well as you can, and to try to um, get to know different groups of people and different. I don't know how you know you might do it if you're kind of grow up in a small town, but you know you can get out and and uh, you know meet people or get engaged in different organizations that will help you build a network. I think of people that might have different values than you have, or uh, certainly a different background. and um, So it all helps understand people, which is the name of the game, I think. Speaking to a friend of mine, that what strikes us as you being a leader is your ability to be prepared to do whatever it takes. In other words, you lead by example. What other qualities would you say Dr. Boyer helps in shaping um, an individual as a leader? Yeah. Well, you, you certainly need a lot of energy, which means you need to take care of yourself. And uh, so I, you know, I've, like we talked about earlier, I really, I've always enjoyed sports and physical activity. So I've tried to stay active. And, uh, and I, you know, I guess growing up on a farm where everything I think was probably organic <laughs> and we prepared all of our own food. I've, I've always cooked for myself even after my husband died. Uh, some people say, well, I just can't cook for one. Well, I can and I can enjoy it. And I, you know, it's I just true. enjoy it's it. It's kind yes. of a creative process of just putting things together and, and uh, and I've I've taken some cooking classes in Italy and France, so I've I've tried, and of course I learned some cooking uh, skills in Colombia and in Mexico. But uh, so, and I've traveled, you know, in a lot of Asia and of course Africa. So trying to pick up uh, those, like tonight we're having rubles. Well, I had never met this tea until I went to South Africa a few years ago. So you you know you learn wherever you are and 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 uh, enjoy things that you might be able to bring home. So, But those those are, to me, you know, when I came to Dyersburg, we were only in one location. So uh, growing up in a, in a rural community, it's distances are really, right. and back then, I mean, none of us had more than one car usually per family. So even getting the three miles from our farm to the high school where I wanted to participate in activities was sometimes a, a challenge. You know? So uh, distances, geography, 
so I was kind of intent, and there was a lot of that go, starting to go on in Tennessee of building off-campus centers. But it, as you know, you've driven to Covington. Yes. You know, I mean, often I'd be down there for meetings and trying to, you know, attend events and meet people, talk about maybe building a campus down there. So it just takes a lot of time and energy, you know, and you're, you're working day and night and sometimes weekends. And so it just, it takes um, a lot of devotion to the, the job, you know, and, and it's, uh, so I think uh, just keeping yourself physically well and, and uh, you know, I think this balance, uh, sp spiritual, physical, you know, all of that's important, so. A balance to prevent the burnout. That's it. <laughs> That's ba it. Balancing That's for to sure. Yeah. Innovation as far as education in the area of Northwest Tennessee. Where do you see things moving in the future? How do you see the um, education evolving? Mm -hmm. Right now, there's a lot of interest in STEM. I think the science, technology, uh, engineering, and mathematics, and so. Um, but there's, there are a lot of opportunities, you know, when we went through the Great Recession from um, nine, uh, 2008 or nine, you know, through in, in our area, I think it lasted for sure until 11 or 12, um, a lot of manufacturing plants closed and, and I think people looked around and the people that were still working were teachers, a lot of people in education, people in healthcare, um, and some you know, some um, uh, major companies. So I think the whole, um, the, the needs where we can kind of grow our communities because our expectation is to be pretty steady state in these counties and we really need to somehow attract people and keep our young people here. So to help them get skills that will prepare them for jobs that are available locally, I think is important. And, I know at the college we do we're doing more and more in healthcare. Uh, you know, nursing is a big one, but you know, emergency medical technology and paramedics and 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 the other thing that um, is happening. So many students are not taking advantage of all the opportunities right after high school. You know, there's a Tennessee Promise scholarship, but in this county. Um, only 68% um, of our students are going on to something post-secondary. Maybe the Tennessee College of Applied Technology in Newburn, or the Community College, Dyersburg State, or to the university at UT Martin. So, uh, you know, it's it's really disappointing <laughs> that students are passing that up. And, and if they would become an EMT, you know, our fire departments need them, the police departments need them, companies hire EMTs. You know, it's kind of the first step on the ladder of emergency medicine, but they can work their way up and, and um, you know, to become a paramedic. And if they're a paramedic, if they want to become a nurse, we have that fast-track program from paramedic to RN. So, um, and then the same thing in education. There's a huge need for early childhood education and for childcare uh, period, and for people to be well prepared to take care of children. So that's um, unfortunately, not, it's not well paid. That's something as a country we really need to do something about. Um, 
and then uh, we do have a good solid manufacturing base now and so many of them are becoming more and more technical, more automated, so robotics and programmable logic controllers and you know really having a good understanding of electrical systems, mechanical systems and um, uh, all of those sorts of things are, are very accessible to people and we're trying to do more in high school you know, students still, like me, still have trouble once high school's over is getting from some rural location from their home to the college. And they may not have good broadband either, so they can't take an online course very easily. So um, trying to do as much as possible while they're in high school, they still have a bus that picks them up every morning, brings them home. Uh, so we started um, certified nursing assistant programs in eight high schools last year, and if the high school already had it, we had a grant that helped them update their equipment. We paid for the instructor that they would use. We paid for the student to have the uniforms they needed because they needed clinical experience like in a nursing home. And they needed to take certifying licensing exams at the state, which cost a hundred or more dollars each. So we paid for all of that through the grant. And I think we produced maybe 55 or so CNAs our first try, which was during the pandemic year. So it was not an easy year to try to get all that started. But our idea is to put more post-secondary kind of uh, preparation courses in high schools so students might get a credential, like as a certified nursing assistant or as an EMT or maybe they might be a certified production technician for manufacturing, or they might become a, uh, get an A-plus kind of rating with Cis or not Cisco, but like CompTIA or, or Microsoft, you know, some of the IT certifications, right. they might be able to earn that while they're in high school. So they could go to work uh, and maybe earn enough for their own transportation, and then hopefully the employer and uh, you know would encourage them to keep getting better skills and so a lot of employers help students come back to school and and keep learning keep getting more and more credentials and you know like uh, I think my, uh, Walmart I believe is offering scholarships now and so you know it's uh, you've got to take the opportunity yeah and so if we can do it while they're captured in high school is our our thought, you know, they got their parents or somebody at home that's kind of taking care of them maybe, and they've got a counselor and teachers in high school. They have us who are, you know, people at the college. And in our grant, we also hired a, a counselor who, would, who helps with vocational counseling and, and helping them explore different careers and saying, you know, why don't you think about this and, you know, go to the community college and have your tuition paid. So. Um, I think in Northwest Tennessee, we need to, you know, for every program we have, we have advisory committees. So right. these are local people who are telling us, you know, you need to do this. Um, this is what we need for our employees. And so we get a lot of good advice that we try to follow. And But we're a state institution and we have to be accredited and all this. So you got to offer things at certain levels. But, you know, just to make all that work is important. Uh, to meet local needs. How do we as a community foster that, um, 
that urgency that you do need a post-secondary education, that it's actually not an option, it's a necessity. I mean, it's a necessity for a better life. What can we do as a community to promote that culture of uh, seeking out a post-secondary education? How can we work towards that? Yeah, I know, um, you know, the Tennessee Promise Scholarship requires or asks for community members to be mentors. So, um, say a graduating class at Dyersburg High School might have 250 or so students, and the same thing at Dyer County. So I sign up to be a mentor, and I'm assigned maybe 10 students or depending on how many mentors sign up. So we are out asking the community, and it, it's, it's amazing. It's a wide variety of uh, community leaders that do come forward, and, and so they try to stay in contact with this student, or at least let the student know they're there if they need help with anything. And the mentor doesn't have to be an expert in filling out the free application for financial student aid, you know, right. the FAFSA, which is, but they, they need to know where they could send this student to get help or who to call. And uh, so that's, um, I think that's one way the community mm -hmm. could, could uh, encourage students and, um, you know, to, I think to also to be sure that we have strong uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, and, yes. you know, volunteer to help with all of those kinds of things. We don't have a Boys and Girls Club yet in Dyersburg, but that would be a great thing to have to help encourage uh, young people. And so, um, there, I think there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer. And of course, our public library tries to get a lot of students, kids in, and and help them. So again, they need volunteers, I'm sure. Dr. Boyer, what advice would you have uh, for any uh, young emerging leader out there? What advice would you have for them? Yeah, I, th I think for sure to get the, uh, you might call them tickets, you know, be sure you get these degrees. Uh, if you are going to be competitive, maybe for a top executive job, um, be sure that you earn a doctorate, really, if you want to stay in education depending on what field you're in, whatever the terminal degree is. But also, uh, it's really helped me to kind of work my way up, you know, from being an adjunct. You know, some students now want to be in the corner office as a CEO when they're 23, you know. Well, it's a good thing I wasn't, because I don't know what I would have done then. But um, So I think just being an adjunct, experiencing how they work and feel and, you know, what resources they have. And, and then I was a faculty member and um, a department head and an academic, you know, vice president of academic affairs and then, then uh, president. So, you know, it took a number of years. I think I was on kind of a fast track just because it was a new institution and there was so many opportunities to do things. And, and it was at a time, too, where... I don't know, there were scholarships and assistantships and, and there was money, you know, like my college could afford to send me to Harvard for uh, a month, which, you know, it's quite a luxury to be able to go and do something yes. like that. So, uh, but just being willing to take advantage, but also putting in the time to get the degrees and, and not being afraid to work your way up. So. Um, and to, you know, to volunteer and do things, uh, I mean, I ask people to chair committees at the college, and most of the time people are willing to do it, but, you know, maybe to let, let the leadership know, 
you're, you'd be interested in kind of leading maybe the curriculum committee or and just to show how you communicate and work with people helps build kind of your skills and and you get noticed and then people want you to to move up possibly and just being there too you know now it seems like employers are happy if people just show, show up, up. <laughs> you know? but uh, we want a little more uh, participation if possible so if I had to ask you, what would you say in terms of your core values? What is the, the one thing that is closest to your heart? What would you say that it, that would be? Yeah. Well, I think you need to always be honest with people. And if things, I mean, sometimes it's hard to uh, tell some people some things that are true that, you know, they're not going to like to hear and it's not going to be pleasant telling them possibly. You know, some people receive, um, I don't know if you want to call it, constructive criticism maybe uh, in a positive way, but some people do not. And I think, you know, being honest with people, if there's, if you have to make some sort of correction or whatever, but if you say you're going to do something, then do it, you know, if at all possible. And if you can't, explain why you can't. Uh, So... It's, I think, and just the communication, I probably, uh, um, you know, let, get people involved with things or let people know things that maybe they don't care about, but if you don't tell them, then they do care about it, you know. So I I probably over, you know, overdo on uh, communication, just letting people know where we are and, uh, and some of it's not wonderful but we you know we're all in this together so That's let's right. see what we can do to make it better dr boy i have to ask what are the plans for after the 31st of december <laughs> That's a good question i i don't know you know um i've done a lot of work with accreditation of schools um i our southern association of colleges and schools commission on colleges um, accredits colleges from texas around to virginia so i'm I've worked in every state. You can't work in your home state, but uh, and I've chaired maybe 27 committees over the years. So this is a another opportunity, I think, for people. If you get a chance to be on an accrediting group or, or a program evaluation group, you know, volunteer and do it. It's more work. I mean, you we would go spend three or four days in a college, but it's a chance to really examine what other people are doing, and you invariably learn new things and uh, and you try to help that institution but you go home with some good things so i may continue um, doing a little bit of that work they say retired presidents can do that for three years so um, and then there's a, a a group called the registry where they register uh, retired executives that might want to be an interim president so you know, sometimes a college, maybe something happens, uh, maybe a president dies or they get fired or something, and it's just kind of a, a spur of the moment. So the institution may need someone to come in uh, to serve as interim while they do a search. And so um, some of my friends have done that, and they go to, you know, different parts of the country. So that's a possible thing. And and I enjoy traveling, so I may I have friends in France that we've uh, exchanged visits since probably 1982. So I, I'm uh, thinking I'll try to get back there. I was hoping to in the past year or so, but it's not worked out like we were talking about earlier. It's hard to travel to some of these countries. So, 
that's a possibility. But there's a there's a group called Road Scholars. It used to be uh, the old Elder Hostel, but uh, and it's Road as in R O A D, <laughs> and it's a lot of um, it's trips all over the world, but also in North America or, or whatever, wherever. And and it's um, again with like professors, so you get a lot of. Uh, education along the way if you want it, I think. I mean, it's not just out for tourism, but it's to learn about cultures or to learn about maybe, uh, I think uh, there's some, I, I never have studied much biology, and there's a marine biology experience through this group on the coast of Texas, and I've always kind of, I, I mean, I'd be interested in doing that and seeing what I could learn, and, and of course, uh, you can go to a foreign country and spend some time and learn a language better. So all of those sound interesting to me. And I have a, a cabin in Colorado that I've uh, gone to since the 60s. And uh, so I'm, I would enjoy spending some time out there. And there's plenty to explore out there, too. So I, you know. Dr. Boya, you know everyone wants to know, are you going to be coming back to Dyersburg? Is Are you going to have a home here or? Yeah, I, oh. I, I, you know, I'm going to apply to be president emeritus, okay. which um, uh, every president up to, it was a benefit for presidents up until about the 1990s. And since I've been president, uh, you know, since the 80s, I have this benefit if the board, you know, they've never turned anyone down, I don't think. So the new president with the president emeritus could ask for some projects, you know, to work on. So uh, depending on who that person is, and and so I anticipate, you know, being back a little bit. I probably will live in Memphis. I have a home there, um, but you know, I don't know exactly what I would do if I have an extended project where I have to be here several days. Exactly how to handle that, but I will figure it out, I guess. <laughs> But, you know, I hate, I've been a pretty active with Kiwanis. I hate to, uh, you know, I mean, I'll probably join a group in Memphis, but, you know, it's uh, it's a lot to leave. It's, it's a, it is a, a major thing, but, you know, all these good things end, unfortunately, I guess, and lives are too short to get it all yes, done. So. <laughs> As you said, we, we take our opportunities and just, you know, just keep ourselves open. But so, will Memphis be your home base? Yes. Oh, okay, Memphis. Yeah, I've um, my husband and I, when we got married and moved there, we bought a home in 1972. So I've kept that home, and uh, I usually am there maybe on a Saturday night or a Friday night. I'm usually there maybe one night a week, and you know I go to. Uh, I think I have subscriptions to about four theaters and a couple of symphonies, so I go to concerts and theater productions and I have friends that you know I worked with when I was there and so we get together for things so it's a uh, it's you know I mean it's going to be different because the city of Memphis is a little uh, harder to negotiate it's so handy with things in a small town you know and of course knowing people so it's uh, going to be an adjustment but and I, I've been kind of in my, uh, in this groove for 37 years. So, you know, it used to be I was moving from uh, about every three years, but now, you know, I've, uh, I've not done that for a while. <laughs> Dr. Boyer, this home that we're sitting in right now is absolutely beautiful, y'all. Uh, so this is the home that the president of the college right. lives in. Yeah. 
And it's been your home for the last 37 years. Wow. This is where I've lived the longest in my whole life. You know, I haven't lived anywhere else for 37. When I was growing up, I think I left home, you know, to go to college when I was about 17. So I only spent 17 years there. So, uh, yeah, it is a lovely old place and uh, a lot of charm, you know. And uh, it was built in about 1927, 28, and it was built by the Weekly family. And the Weekly family is still here. They were attorneys, and there's uh, a Weekly attorney office right down by First Citizens National Bank. Yes, okay. So I think either uh, Mr. Weekly, who's still living, uh, it was either his father or grandfather that... uh, built this house so uh, and of course the the driveway as you'll notice when you go out just kind of goes toward downtown so there you know Troy Avenue didn't go to the left when this house was built I don't think so so it's uh, and the college has done you know does a lot of work to keep it up in good shape so it's it's well maintained I think and you know the equipment everything works well so we're fortunate to have good Technicians, people at the college that can keep, you know, old air, well, it's not an old air conditioning system, it's already been done, but the plumbing is from from a long time ago, so uh, anyway, it's it's in good shape. It's so in good hopefully shape. the state will not make the college sell it. They've sold off a number of the community college president's homes, but... Uh, but I think in a small town like this, it's a real advantage. You don't have, it's hard to find a home right now with all the, the markets pretty tight. Dr. Boyer, reflecting back, what would you say to Karen that was 16 years old living in Quincy, Illinois? What would you say to your 16 year old self? Number one, get a good education, you yes. know, and you know, work hard at that. And then, and of course, like I said, growing up, we worked hard on the farm. So you know, work hard in your jobs. jobs. I mean, it's not yeah. a none of the jobs I've ever had have been like an eight to four thirty job. Uh, they're usually uh, pretty demanding. So that's why you need all the good strength and energy you can muster. <laughs> And not only physical, but probably mental and uh, you know spiritual strength too. So it's it can get to be challenging. But uh. I can't thank you enough for spending this last hour with me. Uh, it's been invaluable. Thank you for sharing your experiences as well as your knowledge. And Dr. Boyer, the best of luck moving forward. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it, and I've enjoyed our uh, you know, friendship over the last few years. Yes. So thank you very much. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. And uh, until we get see you all the next time, remember to always get to the top of your mountain. This is Marsh Naidu signing off.